Today we have a special interview with actor and comedian Steve Way, and we'll be discussing muscular dystrophy. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. But today is a special episode. Today, we will be interviewing comedian and actor Steve Way, one of the stars of the hit Hulu TV series, Rami. Steve has a form of muscular dystrophy. So in our second half, we'll be doing a deep dive into muscular dystrophy. Well, friends, as Asif mentioned, we're very excited to have Steve on the show today. I'll give you an introduction in case you don't know who Steve is. Yes, he is a lead on the show, Rami, and he is also the star of a web series called Uplifting Dystrophy. He has been a comedian for almost a decade, performing out of New York and New Jersey, yeah, he's going to tell us a lot about the the improv he's done and the other comedy he's done. He's got comedy coming up in the New York area that we'll mention. Most notably, Steve is an advocate for disability awareness. He's a public speaker. He's a motivational speaker, most notably with the Muscular Dystrophy Association. Steve Way, welcome to Doctor versus Comedian. Morning, y'all. Thank you so much. So, Steve, why don't we get started with talking about your comedy? What inspired you to get started in comedy? I always used comedy growing up as a coping mechanism to how to deal with my disability. If I ever had a setback, I would always try to turn it into a joke. You know, like whenever I stopped walking, um, if someone told me my shoe was untied, I would say, so it's not like I'm going to watch and trip on it. <laughs> but obviously, the older I got, the funnier I got. Right out of high school, very good friend of mine, this random, this random dude, Robbie Youssef, <laughs> uh, who I've known for over mm-hmm. 20 years now, uh, was doing a comedy show in our hometown of Rutherford. And he said, Steve, I want you to write a stand-up set. So I said, okay, that's weird. <laughs> but I did it anyway. Two weeks later, I showed it to him. And he read it. And he said, great. You're going to perform it at the show. So I didn't really have a choice. Hmm. But I did stand up for the first time in my own town in front of about 300 people. And that was pretty much it. I kept doing it as a hobby. I never really took it seriously because my doctors always told me that I was going to die like tomorrow. So it wasn't until about 25 when my doctors were like, oh, actually, we were wrong. You're going to live. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why I started to take it seriously for a career. No, that just evolved into acting. And here I am now, three seasons into a show. God bless those random dudes, huh? Yes, yes. I want to talk about, about Rami in a second, but did you have any role models in stand-up or comedy? I always listened to uh, George Carlin. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to my judicial field, I always like to watch that. Let's saw the world for what it is. Guys were really depressed. Hmm. Um, I felt like I always resonate with that. Yeah. And I uh, kind of turned my disability into a similar form of comedy. Well, I wanted to ask you a bit about that. I was going to ask if you've experienced any barriers to being a performer with a disability, but that's probably a relatively ignorant question on, on my part. Obviously, I see patients with disabilities every day in my job. You know, a better question is what barriers did you face? Because, you know, yesterday in my clinic, I had two people in a wheelchair coming into the clinic room and there wasn't enough room for both of them. You know what I mean? So that's a barrier in a hospital that's supposed to be catering to people who have a disability. So I guess a better question is what barriers did you face trying to get into comedy and developing your comedy career? Oh, I mean, stairs. Like, I, I'm not performing at the comedy cellar anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. I can never perform at UCB over in Chelsea. Mm-hmm. And that was half because of stairs and half because the person in charge of that theater just didn't want to deal with any other alternatives to get me in. So, yeah, there are a lot of Places in New York where I couldn't perform. Mm-hmm. It's super annoying. But you got to make it work, whatever venues you can perform at. To sum up your barriers, I guess two words stairs and assholes. That's probably the most concise way to put that. Which is being a performer myself, there's a lot of both of them around. So that's just, let's not. Let's not reduce it to those two words. Let's just say, let's do the opposite and be like, by the way, those are probably the two biggest things you see the most in stand-up comedy. Steve, everything I read about you, I feel like there's an effort to make sure that you mention your work as a substitute teacher. Is that something you're still doing? It's temporarily on hold just because my license expired. I've been doing it for 10 years now. Mm -hmm. And now my depression and anxiety is holding me back from having me call the State Department of Education just because I'm drinking that phone call. (laughs) Because anytime you call government is a nightmare. Mm -hmm. But I miss it. I really miss it. I love that job. What Um, ages were you teaching? uh, High school. Okay. High school. I love talking to the kids, getting to know them, hear their stories. I'm hopeful for the future because of these kids. No, it's amazing. You know, they're they're really smart. They get it. You know, they're angry at the world. I don't know. I I always feel like if if I could just talk to one kid that day, if I could hear one story, that'll change my perspective of the world that it's worth it i'm pretty glad i asked that question and heard that answer because you know as people who may not be familiar with jersey unfortunately probably the jersey shore comes up and and that's not necessarily something that's hopeful for the future not me steve i'm jersey is jersey gave me bruce springsteen and bon jovi Jersey can take a long nap. Jersey's done everything. It's done all the heavy lifting as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, that's great to hear. I love that. And I think that's critical that people have that in their life too. If your work, your leisure, everything you do is void of hope, that's a tough life. Yeah. And it's not like your stereotypical 
substitute classroom relationship. You know, these kids are so respectful. They're so helpful. They have no problem helping me. They talk to me like they talk to anyone else. If anything, they're more comfortable talking to me because they know who I am from TV. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't see a disability. I think it's really beautiful. So you were doing that while, after you had started season one of Rami, you were still doing some substitute teaching? Oh, I was doing substitute teaching since I was like 21. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So all the way up to recently until the expiration of your license. Wow. So really, I was doing stand-up and acting after substitute teaching. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Okay. Those are your roots. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to be a full-time teacher, but four years of college really took a lot out of me. Yeah. So I thought, you know, why not do the next best thing? And honestly, it's because I did substitution. I was allowed to to stand up and acting. Getting to the acting, I did want to ask you about how you initially got involved with Rami. I mean, we're assuming it was through through Rami Yusuf, but how did that kind of how did he approach you? How did that come about? One day. He told me that he was going to pitch a show to a bunch of different networks and that he was going to write me a part. And I guess I really didn't believe it until I saw a script with my name in it. Mm-hmm. It was heavy. But at the same time, the network was not really sold on having a disabled actor. So they read the part that he wrote for me. And the first thing they said, was great. He was going to play Steve. Hmm. And Robbie <laughs> said, Steve's going to play Steve. And I said, okay, well, he's going to have to audition first. So I had to audition for a role that was written for me. <laughs> oh, boy. That's always a humbling experience for an actor. We're looking for a Steve Way type. And you're yeah. like, hey, I'm, I'm actually, I am that type because right. I am yeah. exactly that person. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but you still have to earn it. Yeah. Even better that they saw you and felt like, well, yep. nobody else is going to do this as well that, as Steve. That's the guy who's meant to play the guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, why don't we discuss your current story arc in this season? I don't want to give too many spoilers because it's great. So the key thing, which I think a lot of our listeners may have heard, is that Bella Hadid is in this season. And I heard that before the season started, and I kind of forgot about it. And then the episode four of this season came out, and I was watching it, and I'm like, so Steve, your character gets engaged. And there's a scene, the first scene in the episode, I believe, is you and and Rami and your fiancé at a restaurant. And I'm like, who is playing your fiancé? She's acting very unusual. It's It's a hilarious kind of performance. And only then did I realize that was Bella Hadid. So tell us about how this all got pitched to you with this story arc with Bella Hadid playing your fiancé? Before every season, when Robbie's in the writing room, he will call me and basically tell me what I'm getting into. So for season two, spoiler alert, he calls me one day and he says, Steve, I'm going to jerk you off. And I said, fuck. All right, fine. (laughs) <laughs> so for season three say, Steve you're gonna have a girlfriend oh wow no way yeah she's gonna be like autistic alright man 
whatever you say. And then right before, you know, we started shooting that season, he was like, yeah, man, I had a meeting with Bell ID. She's going to play your girlfriend. And I was like, what the fuck? Guys, it's just, it's just, it's, it's insane to just, you know, act opposite someone on, on her level. And, and she knocked it out of the park. You know, she's great. In case our listeners don't know, Bella Hadid is not an actor. She is a supermodel. We should mention that. It, there is, it is possible. Two things are possible here, uh, Steve. One thing, it's possible that people don't know. There might be some people who don't know who Bella Hadid is. Number two, it is possible that there are some people who haven't illegally downloaded Rami and watched it. Rami is very well aware of the illegal downloading because Hulu is, you know, not everybody in Canada, for example, not to say that we have illegally downloaded it, God forbid, but Hulu is very tough to get. I had those files. <laughs> I really hope Hulu and twenty-four. Don't listen to this. I had those files at 12.03 a.m. the night season three dropped. <laughs> so the reason why Canada and the rest of the world has those links, you're welcome. <laughs> we know we, he's, he's the uh, Snowden of, uh, of the Rami. Uh, yeah. yeah, I got it. I got it. I, I got of... it. I'm going to Florida. <laughs> That's they, right. They won't extradite me. <laughs> Back to Jersey. From there. The best whistleblowing ever. Self-whistleblowing. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about, I mean, Asif and I cannot encourage people enough to watch Rami. It's such a wonderful show. And, and you know, as is the case with so many shows, as the rhythm gets going and as people sort of, not only the actors themselves discover things about where their own characters can go, but as other people like the Bella Hadids and the Mahershala Ali's of the world are like, I'd like to be part of that project. A show can only sort of get better and better and weirder and wilder. And it's it's been amazing to see the, the journey and the arcs of this show. I wanted to ask you about something else. You know, I wanted it to be clear to our listeners. Obviously, this is an audio podcast. You have had some struggles with your local government and, you know, the government, the federal government as well. And I wanted to mention that you require help dressing, grooming, bathing, you require daily help. And under Trump, you were regarded as not disabled enough as you, you know, so, sort of campaigned for your, for, 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 for the help you needed and in, in the care and home. Has that changed? Has, you know, you're an advocacy for disability rights and you want to live independently and it hasn't been easy to do so. But what I knew was that was under Trump in the last year or the last little while. Has that changed at all? So unfortunately, I've always been classified as not disabled at all. But it was under President Trump where my health care was at the most risk of being cut even more. So, basically, it's always been bad. Like, it's always been really bad. And it's still really bad. But it was under President Trump when it was almost even worse. So imagine you already, you already have that really low bar. And it was tried to be lowered even more. So that's when the fight 
really started. No, it's not better. Over years ago, ironically, during the height of the pandemic, a judge basically told me to my face, I'm not disabled enough for more care at home. So I thought, okay, if I can't get, you know, extra help at home during a global pandemic where I can't leave my house, then I'll never get the care that I need. It's infuriating. Infuriating to hear about. I can't imagine what you go through. I, my sister has a special needs and she collects. We live in the province of Ontario. This Ontario Disability Savings Plan is kind of everything to her. She can go to the dentist. She can go get different things, you know, because of this plan. And sure enough, depending on who's in government, it's one of the first things that certain governments will look at to cut with no regard for people who do have disabilities. So, yeah, I don't even know what what to say about that. I, I'm, people with disabilities are are lucky to have you at the forefront of that fight. I will just say that. No, thank you. I really appreciate that. You know, the older I get, I realize I have this growing platform and I feel a sense of obligation to use it, not in a bad way. You know, it's not like a chore, but yeah, I, I gotta speak out about these things that affect our lives because there are very few people who have the platform that I have. So if I'm one of those handful of people, I gotta use it. I think you, in terms of other actors with disabilities, as you said, you're at the forefront. And I think it's good for people who haven't experienced what you've experienced to to hear these kind of stories. As I mentioned to you before, Steve, before we came on the air, we're going to do a deep dive into muscular dystrophy after you get off the line. But for the last part of our chat, I want to ask you a bit about your specific form of muscular dystrophy. It's Ulrich congenital muscular dystrophy. And I want to give people an overall idea of how common it is. It's not very common at all. I've maybe seen one patient with it ever. So it's rare for pediatric neurologists. And we deal with a lot of rare diseases. And in the grand scheme of, if you look at a list of muscular dystrophies. You know, I was reading the other day that uh, some of the websites will say there's nine types of muscular dystrophy. They're not going to list this one. That's how rare it is, right? Right, Steve? So maybe tell us a bit about this. Do you know this from yourself or your parents? Like when you were diagnosed, was it a long, what we say, diagnostic odyssey to kind of get to the diagnosis? Yeah, it was uh, about a 25-year journey. Wow. We always knew I had muscular dystrophy when I was born. My hands and my feet were floppy, which is like the telltale sign of that. Mm-hmm. When I was four years old, I was diagnosed with congenital muscular dystrophy, which anybody with a medical degree could have told you. Mm-hmm. Just because I'm the only one in my family that has it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was 25, I finally found out the specific type and i guess because it was so rare it always threw doctors off but yeah i finally found every university down in atlanta they run a lab down there that helps people basically find out what they have Mm -hmm. so my friend who was a doctor helped me spit in a tube yeah one september day when i was 25 got the results and it was heavy you know, I feel like I finally had the last piece to that puzzle. Yeah. 
Do you know which mutation you have? Yeah, collagen six. Yeah, okay. And because there's a six A one, six A two, six and the six A. Uh, uh, six A three. Okay. Oh, so, wow. Okay. And so, do you? I just think about what you what you were saying to us at the beginning about how doctors are like, yeah, you know, again, congenital muscular dystrophy. As you said, this is kind of a grab bag term. There's many types of congenital muscular. Well, which one? Okay. And so, do you feel that? Doctors just kind of said, yeah, this is what you have. This is your diagnosis. And there wasn't any desire to test people further because now like us and maybe younger neurologists would be like, yeah, of course, we have to go to the ends of the earth to try and get the genetics and figure out exactly what's going on. But do you think there was just a bit like, well, this is what you have? And It's funny. They only really tried whenever I had a major surgery. Uh, my doctor would take out a piece of muscle and biopsy it. Nothing ever came up. When I was 14, I had back surgery to correct scoliosis, and it almost killed me. And from that moment on, my doctors basically said that if I get sick, that's it, I'm dead. So it was, you know, you're not going to live past 18, 21, 25, and then when I turned 25, they're like, oh, see, we're actually healthy. You know, you're going to live a long time. I'm just like, fuck. You know, now I gotta actually figure out my life. But at the same time, yeah, you know, when I was 2021, there was a small push by a doctor to figure out what I had. So I had a couple of blood tests done, and it's really hard to take blood from me. And that triggered a major PTSD episode. So I kind of stopped after that. But then when I found out that I could do it by a spit test, I thought, okay, I could do that. But I'm not gonna lie, there is one part of my life that I feel like my doctors let me down. And that's my reproduction. I didn't find out until last year that I am unable to have kids naturally. And that is a side effect of muscular dystrophy. And I thought, why at 30 years old am I just hearing this for the first time? I have seen so many doctors. I have been in so many hospitals. Not one doctor ever said that to me. And I thought, okay, so either they thought I'd be dead by now, or they never thought I would have lived long enough to have kids, or they never thought I would find someone to have a family with. So, yeah, I kind of feel let down. I kind of feel like they never gave me a chance to have that part of my life. So, at 31 years old, I'm now taking necessary steps to eventually have a family. And yeah, I kind of wish someone told me that a while ago. So I got a head start on that. But now I'm slowly getting over that and using my platform to try to tell people with my condition who are younger to be like, hey, get tested for this. Because if you're like me, you know, you got to start freezing your shit. 
I really appreciate you saying that, Steve. We have a lot of physicians who are listeners on our show and a lot of people who are in pediatrics. And it's a real blind spot for, for people like myself. I'm, I'm going to say it as well. I'm, I'm, you're, you're right. Because we are so focused on dealing with kids and children and their parents and, and, you know, explaining and trying to diagnose things. But then we forget what happens when you get into the adult world. And as you know, there's a big difference between when you're followed as a child and when you're followed as an adult. There's a huge difference. And we don't ask those questions that you're talking about or, or even consider it a lot of times. I appreciate you bringing it up because it's, it's a real blind spot for a lot of people. No, of course. Thank you. And, and I sort of took that. You know, obviously, my doctor is not going to bring that up when I'm 10 years old, you know? But, like, for example, like I said, when I was 25, and I found out exactly what type of dystrophy I had, I met with a genetic counselor to talk about the chances of me passing this on. And I had a partner. And we talked about that. But not once did the possibility of me not having kids naturally ever come up. And I looked about that and I'm like, that should have been talked about. You know, obviously in hindsight. But one thing my girlfriend and I always talk about is that I'm, I'm so grateful that I found out now before it's too late. Because I am now given the opportunity to eventually have kids down the line. It's not the news you want to hear. No one ever says, hey, you got to jerk off into a cup. And we got to put it in a freezer. That's not really fun. But at least I have that opportunity. Yeah, it sounds funny. But I am super grateful for that. You know, it's particularly wild to think about this idea of you thinking you had a limited lifespan and, you know, 18, 21, 25. I just think about the gambling and hard drug debt that you must be in from those years of thinking that it was all going to be over. And now you're like, oh, God, I have a life. I got to pay all these yeah. debts down. I'm not going to lie. I feel like I had 11 years of my life taken away from me. Hmm. You know, like I said before this, I did stand up as a hobby. You know, if I treated it like a career, since I started when I was 19, I can't imagine where I'd be at by now. Sure. I can't imagine. But well, that's, that's life. Steve, you've been very generous with your time. We appreciate it. I do want to let people know, people who live in New York, and then, of course, New York is a great destination for lots of folks around New Year's, and you're doing a show on December 30th, is it? 29th. Uh, December 29th, which is also your birthday? My birthday is the 28th. 28th. The night uh, after your birthday, uh, you're doing uh, basically a birthday show. The, the 32nd annual Steve Boy birthday bash. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to frame it. At a place called Caveat. And the research has been done. You will be able to get to the stage. There are no... Stairs, no, no, this and is, there are good people. Yeah, this is like my new home base. Okay. Uh, really great theater. It's run by really fantastic people. Uh, very welcoming, very accepting. About to my birthday show, I'm ready by hour. If you don't come, you're ableist. That's the, um, that's so the way to get people out. out. That's the way to get them out. Um, yeah. if, you, if you can't come, just give me your money instead. <laughs> yeah. Those gambling debts aren't going to pay themselves down. 
So please no, no, help no, Steve. No. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Steve. We loved having you. I'm very happy to be connected with you through our friend Dave Merhez, who was also a guest on this show. And yeah, uh, shout, out you know, shout out to Dave and shout out to Rami and, and the show and the entire Rami world that's popped up and, and, and everything around it. And it's given us an introduction to you. And we're very happy to chat with you today. No, thank you guys. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to have me on. You know, I love medicine. I love comedy. So great, great combination. Well, Austin, that's a great introduction to muscular dystrophy. I mean, it's not going to get better than that. Somebody talking about their own personal life and lived experience and challenges but I think we wanted to go, you know, into this world of muscular dystrophy, which you have a fair amount of experience seeing. If it's not clear, let's explain to people what muscular yeah. dystrophy is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, pediatric neurologists are the experts in muscular dystrophy. There are specific neuromuscular pediatric neurologists who see a lot of these patients, a lot of my colleagues. And the center I work at in Ottawa is actually a big, big center for this kind of research. So muscular dystrophy, we may have heard about before. The Jerry Lewis telethon was was a muscular dystrophy, right. you know, a fundraiser. These are very rare neuromuscular diseases that cause progressive breakdown of your skeletal muscles over time, resulting in weakness and all the other symptoms and some of the things that Steve talked to us about. Right. And just on that note, he was diagnosed at age four. So is that common? Like when you are born, there are some signs. He said his sort of floppy hands, feet yeah. were a telltale sign. But is it possible to be born healthy Absolutely. to the look and Absolutely. then develop it? Okay. Absolutely. So sometimes you have it from birth. That's what Steve was saying. He had congenital muscular dystrophy. So kind of a parent from congenital means like when you're born. Yeah. Some people develop it later. Some people only get diagnosed or develop symptoms in adulthood. Okay. who have it. So it's quite okay. variable. The thing is, muscular dystrophy is an umbrella term. There's probably 30 different types of muscular dystrophies. As we mentioned in our talk with Steve, if you look up some lay websites on muscular dystrophy, they'll say there are nine major types, but there's actually more, like I said, 30. And Steve actually touched on this, Asu, but I, I would love for you to tell people why it is so important to know exactly which type of muscular dystrophy you or you know somebody you're, you're, you're helping has. So there's a couple of reasons. One is because of prognosis, what it means. You're going to hear about somewhere you pass away at an early age. And Steve didn't know, based on that, whether he fell into a category of one that would pass away at an early age or not, what the risk factors are, and also what you need to monitor over time. Some have more heart abnormalities, so you need to monitor that with cardiology. Some will have breathing issues that you have to see. Some people will have scoliosis or curving of the spine when you need surgery. Steve talked about that as well. So it's A for prognosis and B to know for monitoring. And the last one is the other thing that Steve touched upon is what if you want to have kids? What is your risk of passing it on to your children? The vast majority of these are really genetic. And so some of them, you know, we don't have a gene for, but as time has gone on, we've diagnosed more and more and more of these genetic forms of muscular dystrophy. And so you can do testing, as he said, for it. So that's what we would do. Steve mentioned that he has a rare form of muscular dystrophy called Ulrich. You had said there are nine 
main types? Is that right? What are the most common forms of muscular dystrophy? Well, there's so many to talk about, but let's just talk about the one that is seen in probably 50% of cases, and that's Duchenne muscular dystrophy. This is when people are using the term muscular dystrophy. Most people will mean this Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So it was actually described in the 1830s by a physician named Charles Bell, and then later on kind of really concretely defined by Duchenne. So this is a disease, the first thing to know about this disease is it's X-linked. Okay, that means it gets passed on the X chromosome. The gene that's involved codes for a protein called dystrophin, which is involved in stabilizing our muscle membrane. It's a component of our muscle membrane, of our muscle cells, and it involves the stability of that. It's a very large gene called dystrophin. And that's the problem in this, and it's passed down through the X chromosome. What that means is, if you recall, I'll leave from your genetics classes, Women have two X's. So if they are a carrier for this disorder, they'll have one bad X with the gene mutation in it, but they also have a good one that compensates for it. So women don't really have any symptoms. Sometimes they can have heart problems associated if they're just a carrier, but they won't have weak muscle weakness. Boys, however, have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. So they don't have a counterbalancing normal X. So they will be symptomatic. What happens in Duchenne, it's one of the ones that you were kind of asking about. You're normal at birth, quote, normal at birth, and then difficulties are found later on. So kids will have difficulty with walking. They may be late to walk. They'll be clumsy. They have this waddling gait, a wide-based waddling gait, and they have hyperlordosis where they're kind of sticking out their chest and arching their back, and they can even have walking on their toes. And they also develop, look like large calves. They look like their calves are really well muscled, but it's not muscle. It's actually deposition of abnormal tissue in their calves as part of the dystrophic process. So these are all clues. And so if we see a child, you know, around two maybe or so, we would bring them to the clinic, examine them, look for this weakness. There's a special maneuver we do called the Gower's Maneuver. So Ali, I know you're getting old, but if I asked you to sit on the floor and get up very quickly, you'd be able to get up, you know, from a sitting position probably relatively Give me about quickly. three, four minutes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Whereas this one, they have to do a very specific maneuver. You guys can look it up, but you, they have to, if they're sitting, they have to turn onto their stomach and then kind of walk their legs and hands towards each other, kind of like a downward dog, and then climb up their legs to get to an upright position because they have a lot of weakness in their hips and those hip muscles. And then to diagnose it, basically you can do a blood test, which looks at a CK, which is a muscle enzyme test. Normal CK is probably like 200, 100. That would be your level if you got it. And the units we use in Canada. And when you have uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, it's in the thousands. So 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 is what it would be. Because what that CK is showing is muscle breakdown right? And so you have an active process, which is damaging muscles, and you'd have this abnormality seen. And then you could do genetic testing on top of that to confirm it. So if we saw a patient with those kind of symptoms I talked to you about, we wouldn't test for all the different muscular dystrophies at the beginning. We'd probably just test for Duchenne. And then if that testing was negative, we could look into other possibilities. Is there a treatment for Duchenne or any muscular dystrophy? Out of all of them, Duchenne has the most ability for treatment because what happens is children with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, boys will, will eventually lose the ability to walk over time. And usually it used to occur between seven and 13 years of age. We've been able to delay that a bit with the use of steroids. So 
corticosteroids. We've talked a lot about those on, on the podcast before the anti-inflammatory type of steroids. But steroids have a lot of side effects, as you probably know, Ali, in terms of affecting your bones, your stomach, your irritability, your blood pressure. There's many, many issues they have. So they're you're trading off the ability to walk for longer, but they do have side effects as well. And most patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy die by about the third decade of life, usually from heart problems or respiratory problems. Is that common across muscular dystrophy? Like Steve was suggesting that it seems like he was just given a general diagnosis. And so they were assuming it was Duchenne, I guess, with him. They, and- I don't think they thought it was Duchenne because he didn't have the symptoms early on, but I think they were lumping him into it. You're probably going to have these breathing problems and he did have scoliosis and they just kind of were saying, yeah, you're in this category and you're probably going to pass away early. And then he has this specific form of this Ulrich congenital muscular dystrophy. So why don't we talk a bit about that? Because it is a very, very rare form, as we talked about with Steve. A lot of pediatric neurologists will never see a case in their life, but now as he also mentioned, we have genetic testing for it. So this type of muscular dystrophy, they have weakness, but they have this uh, laxity of their joints. That's what Steve was saying. That was the clue. So I always tell my students and residents, you got to look for clues. It's like a detective novel. You have to look for the clues that are being presented to you. And what was different about Steve's case, he had this laxity of his joints, which he said he had from since he was born. So this Ulrich congenital muscular dystrophy, you have these lax joints and muscle weakness. And that's because the problem is, as we were talking about, is mutation in this COL-6 genes. And there's a bunch of different genes and they encode for collagen. And you've heard about collagen probably in like skincare products with collagen and things like that, because collagen is found in your skin, it's found in your blood vessels, and it's found in the supporting structures around your muscles. So when you have a mutation in this collagen, it prevents uh, good anchoring of your muscle cells. That's what collagen is helping with and will cause a muscular dystrophy over time. But because it also affects your joints and your ligaments, you have the joint laxity that he had. So, and there's different forms of these collagen mutations. So the Ulrich form is the more severe form. There's a milder form called Bethlehem myopathy, and there's an intermediate form as well. But if you have the Ulrich form, which which Steve has, some children are able to walk at the beginning, but then they eventually will lose their ambulation, usually by 10 or 11. And then they have a lot of breathing problems. And so they need what's called non-invasive ventilation or, or BiPAP. We recorded this on video, so you guys probably couldn't see, but Steve has a, a BiPAP machine on when he was just talking with us. Uh, that's helping with his breathing over time. But one of the key things is certainly you can have a limited lifespan because of breathing issues or from scoliosis uh, complications as Steve had, but not as much cardiac issues in this disorder. That's good. And that's probably why Steve was saying, you know, I don't have the same limited lifespan as other people with muscular dystrophy do, which is definitely a good thing. The other thing is some forms of muscular dystrophy can be associated with impairments in your intelligence and your thinking abilities. And Steve's is not. As you can tell when we're talking to him, he's extremely bright and funny and and witty. And in fact, some patients with the Ulrich form will have high intelligence as well, not just normal intelligence, but high intelligence. So again, we didn't talk to Steve about that, but I'm sure people sometimes from his appearance assume that he has, without even talking to him, just assume that uh, he has uh, cognitive problems, which of course he does not. I noticed when he was telling you about the type that he has, it was the 
collagen. And then he, I, I think he forgot that you're a pediatric neurologist, so he didn't give you all the detail, but you were interested to hear. So, you know, it was six, three B or some such thing. What was that? His Yeah. He, uh, I just, there was, cause there's different genes. They're all collagen six A genes and there's mm. just different ones. I was just curious about that. It doesn't really affect anyone other than <laughs> listening to this podcast other than probably me and him, but I'm just curious. The genetic testing has been critical for him. Are there genetic treatments as well? Yeah. And that's the most exciting part about this whole area of muscular dystrophy and muscle disease in general. Uh, we talked before about spinal muscular atrophy last year on the podcast where there's new gene therapy for that. And basically they are working on gene therapy for muscular dystrophy, specifically Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And they're using this technology called exon skipping and there's different ways that you can do it. Essentially the exons are these coding regions of our DNA. So what happens when you have a mutation like in Duchenne, you can get what's called a premature stop codon. So what that means is there's an error in the reading of your DNA. And it's instead of saying to make this protein, who's, that's what DNA does, it, it encodes us how to make proteins. So there's an error in the DNA where it says, oh, just stop making the protein right now, instead of continuing to make it. And that's the mutation. But if you could just skip over that stop sign, right? right? It will just skip over that and then continue making the protein and just omit that little tiny area. That's called exon skipping. And that's what they're doing trials in right now with, with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Because the severe patients, there's a milder form of a similar to Duchenne called Becker muscular dystrophy. They have different mutations, but the mutations in Duchenne muscular dystrophy are ones where you could have the stop codon, where it just stops making the protein. So all you gotta do is skip over that stop sign and then mm. In theory, you can do, and there's some promising research that's being done. Like I said, it's being done all over the world, including at the hospital where I work at. So it's very exciting. And so we're hoping, obviously, and this Steve was alluding to this before, this wouldn't help even if we had a gene treatment for him or for a patient who is his age, say in the, in their early 20s with muscular dystrophy. You can't do anything now. You've you can't come back from damage. that. Yeah, because sure. it's an ongoing damage thing. So the key is to diagnose children early on when we have these treatments and then intervene at the time. So again, to answer your initial question from before, that's why, another reason why genetic treatment is doing and knowing the exact mutation is important because it can develop targeted therapies for it. So that's our show for today. Let us know what you guys thought. It was a really eye-opening conversation with Steve. He's such a great guy for doing this show. Again, his advocacy work, his acting, I, I think, you know, the sky's the limit for that guy. He didn't do it in a, in a, obviously in a confrontational way at all, but he did challenge me and what myself and other pediatric neurologists do with regards to our counseling. And I think that's important. I try to challenge you all the time and you never call my work important, but yeah, uh, well, that's a bit of a, a difference. Let us know what you guys thought about this episode. Also, you guys can check out some websites, Muscular Dystrophy Association of Canada's muscle.ca and in the US it's mda.org. Check those out if you want to learn a bit more about muscular dystrophy. Reach out to us, Dr. V Comedian, at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're everywhere, or email us, drvcomedian at gmail.com. Let us know what you guys thought of this episode with actor and comedian Steve Way. Ali, we mentioned that Steve has on December 29th a comedy show coming up an hour. Um, amazing. What an accomplishment for that guy. So impressive. In New York City, what do you got going on? I mean, I'm going to be doing an hour and 20. It's not a competition. You know what I mean? Like oh it's, my God. Uh, it's the. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I am. Uh, I'm going to be on tour in the province of Ontario in January with a, a show called Does This Taste Funny? You can go to my website, standupali.com and see the there's 10 dates in Ontario. And then for March and April, I had uh, out west, Western Canada. All of that information is available on my website. Yep. Is there bacon in heaven? If you're still scrambling for Christmas gifts. It's a good one. And so are, so are seats to a show. So the, I'm going to throw both of those out there. There we go. And so please remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues, we talk about it for your interest and information only. And they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye. Thank you.